This morning we have the rare privilege of hearing from a father in the faith and a great father in the faith at, at that. His name is Dr. Kenneth P. Searle. He was mine and both mine and Sonny's Bible College professor back in 1993 for my wife, 1994 for me. I met him when I was still a high school student. I'll never forget the first time I heard him speak. I was a senior in high school, and I was going to school in East Oakland. It was a Christian school, uh, but not very many of the students were Christians. Actually, almost none of them were, were real believers. And so growing up in East Oakland, you know, there was this draw, the music, the music. I was, I was, kind of, you know, I was loving the Lord and worshiping the Lord, but I had to listen to a little gangster rap on the side. <laughs> And I was, I was just getting really sucked into that culture. And I'll never forget, Dr. Searle preached a message. And he said, some of you are making covenants with the enemy through the music that you're listening to. And it just hit me so hard at the end. He said, if you want to repent, stand up. And I stood up, and he began to pray. And just then, this guy was walking by, and Dr. Searle said, Robert, come in here and pray for that young man back there. And it was Pastor Daniels. He came and laid hands on me and prayed. After that service was over, I went and bought Dr. Searle's book. It was, his book was called Proclaiming God's Two-Edged Sword. It was a book on preaching, and I read it when I was still a high school student. The next fall, I started at Patton College. The fall of 1994, I took him for Bible intro, study the miraculous, he, uh, Hebrews and general epistles, apostolic age, a lot of different courses, and he introduced us to the power of God. He introduced us to the power of God. He would teach the first half of the class, and then he would minister. And when he would begin to minister, people would get healed. I mean, I'm talking about folks who were dying were getting healed. Folks with slipped discs in their backs were being restored. Folks with leg braces on, the braces were popping off and they were walking. I mean, it was powerful miracle signs and wonders happening in the classroom on a regular basis. And not only that, but we were, we were introduced to the presence and power of God that would come so strong that we couldn't even stand on our feet half the time. And there were times when I had to be carried out of his classroom because the power of God was so strong. Why am I telling you this? Because we need to understand the grace of the person who stands in front of us to preach Because if we don't understand the grace, then we don't know how to draw from it. That's why every time Paul opened his letters, he started by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? Because if you don't understand that apostolic grace is being offered to you in this letter, you're not going to receive it. And so I want us to know that Dr. Searle is going to bring a powerful word from the Lord. I want us to set our hearts and our minds on receiving it, drinking all of it, getting it, and and just embracing it. And God's going to do a marvelous thing. Ladies and gentlemen, Reverend Dr. Kenneth P. Searle. hot the mic yeah the mic's hot god bless you how, how many here have been in in a class in a class that i have taught do i have any students in the house i have students in the house in the back in the front i'll make no comment on that i do have a, a wife and a daughter in the front would you like to look at them yeah. my wife commanded me not to have her stand up and I said don't do that to me I'm not going to let you run my house now I have to make you stand up so I, <laughs> Diane and Kendra if you could please stand up aren't they beautiful alright I'm going to tell my favorite Kendra story Kendra you didn't stand up high enough you didn't stay up long enough but anyway um, I got home one day when Kendra was a little baby she was a little baby and uh, Diane said uh, Ken I got to tell you what Kendra did today Diane was telling Kendra to do something, right? So Kendra stood up real tall to mom and said, You're not the boss of me. Dad's the boss of this house. (laughs) (laughs) I said, yes. 
Kendra said, you're not the boss of me. I don't have to do what you tell me. And uh, Diane just thought, yeah, this is so cute. I, I'm not going to discipline her now. I'll just tell Dad when he gets home, you know? So, so I, I get over by Kendra. I look her in the eye. I go, Kendra, I totally agree with your theology. <laughs> I totally agree. With, I am the boss of this house. But when I'm not here, Mom's kind of like the second in command. And it's okay for you to do what she says. So, anyway. And this is what Benjamin just did. It says, know something about those who labor among you. Appreciate them. And uh, that was Ken when he was young. That was when God called me to preach. I was uh, in broadcasting school in San Francisco. And uh, this is my family, my extended family. Uh, that's before we had any of our own kids. Diane and I, you'll see, we're the white folk there on the top. <laughs> and uh, you got uh, my father in the Lord, Brother uh, Hamilton Scott. Uh, I didn't get saved under his ministry, but a true father to me. Hamilton Scott and his, his wife, Willa, they're both with Jesus now uh, and uh, have been now. Brother Scott died on my birthday 20 years ago. And, uh, yeah, 20 years ago on my birthday, May 12th, he was dying on 13th. And then... Uh, my sister's uh, starting left to right, uh, Marie, Alicia, Sheila's the baby, and then Yvonne and Karen. Yvonne could have cut albums when she was eight. What do you think, Di? Remember? Unbelievable voice. They all sang. They were the Christ followers. They were the music in the church. And Hunter's Point, San Francisco's Hunter's Point. God sent me in there when I was 19. You saw the picture when I was young. Anyway, that's uh, the Searle family in 1992. That's when I went to Patton College and. uh in 93 became your teacher, in 94 became your teacher, but met you probably a year, or about the same year. I met you at the high school across the street. And uh, some of you might recognize this fella. This was uh, <laughs> a fella you might know. That's the day he graduated high school, and uh, that's his mom. Okay, well, enough of that torture. Sorry, Pastor. That's when you're not asked back, you know. You're, Something like that. <laughs> and then, yeah. So on the left, you see Amy is my daughter. She's, she's on the far right in the left picture, and Kendra's the one over, and then a couple other kids from our church in Novato. Uh, kids in the venue, it, it was a SOS Jesus thing at Union Square in San Francisco, and it was the first time that Benjamin actually preached out, outside, and the devil got all over and told him, you just need to quit talking because you're really not saying anything worth saying. And uh, what he was saying was really powerful, really anointed, and he was bringing it. And afterwards, I talked to him. And I didn't, I didn't know how impactful this was for you. He just, Benjamin just told me a few days ago, I think, on the phone. And he said, I thought I just did the worst job, he said. And then you came up, talked to me after, and said, you know, Benjamin, I love to hear you sing and play. But when you talked, it was powerful. I mean, you opened doors. You released captives. And, and he just thought I was trying, yeah, being nice. But... I mean, you guys know me. You know, I, I don't preach a gospel of grace. I preach a gospel of grace and truth. If it ain't true, I ain't going to say it. Yeah. And uh, you truly opened doors and set people free. Right. And as Benjamin was preaching just a week or two ago, he says, the devil does not attack you at your weak point. He attacks you at your strong point. And from the beginning, the devil knew, I have to shut this boy up. Hello? So, so what's the devil trying to stop you from doing right now? Huh? So stick your chest out and say, oh, I guess that's what I should be doing then. Oh, you say I'm no good at that? I think I'll do some more of that. Two of the most beautiful women in the world. What's it say? 
A woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. That's uh, Benjamin's wife and my wife. And uh, I'll back you up just again to show you what... Uh... No, no, no. I, that, that, it, it wasn't that one. I was... Sorry. Uh, but on the left there in 92, that was my little family when it was really... They were just little people. And uh, Oh, one thing about that. And, and I got to... I would show people this business card, and they'd go, Oh, Doc, I didn't know you had four kids. I'd go, Wait a second, that's not my daughter, that's my wife. <laughs> you know, no respect. But anyway, that's what my family looks like now. Pretty cool, huh? That was last year. I did a wedding for uh, Seth Allingham, and, and he's, he's, he grew up in our house. He's like a son. And uh, so that's... Double Doc, Doc Searle and his wife Diane. We've been married a couple years, three, four, whatever. And, uh, and then Jason, my son, he was on a small rock that day, the first picture. He, he was the littlest one in the picture. He, was, he stands six foot four. That's his wife, Stephanie. Jason's an AP history teacher at Novato High School where he graduated. He's the head coach for varsity football and the head coach for varsity baseball. His team yesterday won 50 to 7. It was, it was a fun game, funner than the first three. Um, and his wife, he just, uh, he and his wife uh, took a bunch of students to uh, Europe this year. And he teaches AP European history. Can you imagine going where you teach? He said, Dad, it was just unbelievable to see what I've been teaching now. And he said, you come up next to some of the artworks and you feel it. You know, he talked about, anyway, he's just powerful. And then the two girls, you saw Kendra, the one on the left, and Amy, she's down in Southern California. And I got a sermon for you. Made it. <laughs> that uh, I don't know what how much time I had. What did I have? Forty-five minutes in the first service. Uh, those slides took me forty-four and forty-nine seconds. Forty-four <laughs> minutes and forty-nine seconds, and then I flew through this sermon. And uh, I did better, right? Did I do better? Okay. Praise the Lord. Thanks so much. So that that's what happened. You get a. I mean, I was a kickboxer and a boxer. I, I quit kickboxing when I broke my foot on uh, Jay Freeland. He was a middleweight champion. And uh, it's hard to plant on a broken foot, and you really don't want to swing it into anybody. Kicking Jay, I fought him every night for six months, and uh, kicking Jay was like kicking a pipe. And uh, one day, we fought, man, we got up to 10-minute rounds. We would pound on each other, you know, in the karate uh, school, and... and uh, Oh, man, it's such a great fight. You know, the Bible says, fight the good fight of faith. People say, uh, uh, uh. anyway, one preacher said, you know what a good fight is? The one you win. <laughs> yeah, that's just preacher talk. Some fights are so good, it doesn't matter who wins. It was just such a good fight. We would fight and fight. First time he hit me in the stomach, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> and uh, he was already a middleweight champion. And, and uh, he looked at me. I was his pastor, right? So, bang! And... It, and, and it, Sorry, Pastor. And I said, no, 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 Jay, no. It can't be like that. Okay, you got to hit me like everybody else. i got to get used to this. And uh, so I did. I got to win, you know, and, and uh, kicked me in the stomach, hit me. You, it was, I had so much fun fighting. So much fun. I can't explain it. How, any fighters in the house? Oh, sorry, wrong crowd. No, if you have, oh, okay, all right. I remember one day I was working, working as a carpenter. I'd get up at 4.30 in the morning so I could pray for an hour. Then I ate a really good breakfast, 
And then I'd go to work. I worked in the city as a carpenter. I was 35 years old when I started training with Jay. I weighed 210 when I started. Two, two years later, I was 163 pounds. Talk about getting down to fighting weight. I had a beautiful six-pack. It was ridiculous. And, uh, yeah. But one day I got to work, and lunchtime, you know, I was a union carpenter, and you'd get half hour, so I'd wash my hands, 20 minutes to eat. And I go to put my sandwich in my mouth, and it just jams into my face. And I realize, oh, no. I said, God, I'm not going to promise I'm going to stop fighting, but I think Jeff Murray broke my jaw last night. So could you please do my job so, jaw so I can eat my sandwich? I ain't promise I'm going to quit fighting. I just need you to heal me. And Diane used to say, Ken, you know your mouth clicks when you eat? I think maybe the Lord, I, I hope the Lord healed that. But anyway, so I went back, and, and I told uh, Jeff Murray in the karate school, you know, the next day or something, I said, man, you broke my jaw yesterday. He goes, you mean the night you gave me the black eye? I'd seen him walking around with a black eye. I didn't know I gave him that. I go, I gave you that black eye? He goes, yeah. Oh, it's all okay. So I'm totally into this one thing thing. That, and and, and I, I came to church at the right time because uh, I, I just started. This is my new one thing. I want you to see it. Y'all see it? Do I need to hold it up again for you? You know what this is? This is Tap Out XT. Tap Out Extreme Training. Mixed Martial Arts. Yeah, I started it uh, two Thursdays ago. I, I always work out six days a week. It would be seven, but God rested, and I figure I'd probably better too. And the day I rest, I, 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 I like less than the other ones. But uh, there's a reason why I can do Tap Out XT. I'm 61 years old. And, you know, the guys on there, they got old people, like 41. How old are you? Oh, I'm 41. How old are you? Oh, I'm 43, I think. Children. The, <laughs> the reason why I can do Tap Out XT and hang with them is because I just finished three months of Les Mills Combat, which followed two years of uh, insanity with Sean T which followed you know, all that time in the karate school fighting Jay Freeland and, and uh, Todd Aaron and Jeff Murray and just monsters guys were monsters I hit God have mercy on my wife she, she, I, I, I'm killing her I get on these stories I'm killing her right now I'll get to my, I'll get to my notes I promise I, get, I gave what at least 35 seconds I got through my sermon I gave everything I wrote down I but seriously, I, I can hit pretty hard. And uh, when I was teaching at uh, SUM on the corner, you know, Sobrani Park, they had a freshman, uh, a freshman thing. And, yeah, minister tours. I'll talk to this crowd out here. But anyway, they had, they had a special day, right, for the new students. And we all went to a bowling alley in Alameda. Well, this particular bowling alley had a speed bag that you get hit. It'd tell you how many pounds of pressure per inch you put on that speed bag. And, uh, you know, Watson, Tuiono, big Tongan, he'd run and bang, you know, hit that thing, you know, his whole body weight and running. And I tried that, but it, it was like David using Saul's armor. It, it, that ain't how you fight. But he'd, he'd hit that thing running and get it up over 800 pounds of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. I tried it. It just, I thought, no, I'm not going to do this. So I stood underneath it, directly underneath it. And I thought, all right, 
I'm just going to throw one punch. What I'm going to do is I'm going to throw what Jay taught me. It's, it's a double hook. And the first hook comes low. It's kind of a decoy, unless he doesn't see it in time, and you pop him in the side. It causes your opponent to drop their hands, and then you come up, you know, the side of their head, which is now unprotected. So it's pa pa like that, right? <laughs> and I thought, I'll, I'll go with my left hand. So here, here, I'm just standing there, and I get really quiet. I said, I'll go with my left hand. So I go, bang, and I hit that thing. And I'm used to hitting people or heavy bags. And I hit this little speed bag. I almost fell over. And uh, one of the th students, he was a thug. This guy was a genuine thug. And he, he caught me, you know, and I, I th I, that was good. And I looked, you know, you know how many pounds of pressure from nothing? That, that was it. It was just right there. You know how many pounds of pressure? Over 800. Yeah. I hit Todd Aaron one day. I had to fight him blind. They, they made me put he, uh, headgear on, and I didn't, never wore headgear. It bugged me. He swatted me. It wasn't tight enough, so it went over my eyes. So I had to fight Todd Aaron blind. I couldn't see him, couldn't find him. And then I had, to, I had to sense where he was, and at one point, wham, I gave him that whole punch. And I thought, well, this is good. I'm done with him. You know what he did? Pop, pop, pop. And I thought, the man doesn't have a functioning brain cell left. <laughs> It's just a monster. Just a monster. All right. So what I got for you here today is three points in a poem. Hmm. Are we up? We're up. And that's sort of an inside joke. I was, I was hoping uh, somebody who studied homiletics from me would be here. I, I, I make uh, bad comments about people who teach preaching as three points in a poem. Because if you study, my first doctorate's in preaching, my second doctorate's in biblical studies, and uh, been preaching since I was that young kid on the screen, so over about 43 years. And, uh, you know, you look at all the sermons in the Bible, the book of Acts has a bunch of them, they're not three points in a poem, no, he preaches three points in a poem in the, in the Bible, so I figured, uh, but a text was really quickened to me, and I, I looked at it in, in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And it fell right into a pattern of three points, so I figured, all right, three points in a poem. I'll, I'll eat my words and, and preach it the way I tell people don't do it. Titus, so let's see. There it is. The faith, the love, the hupomone. Titus 2, 1 and 2. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. How many in the house are over 60 years of age? The women don't have to raise their hands. How, how many in the house are over 60 years of age? And if, you, if you're a lady and want to, my mom said never ask a lady your age. So, Okay, so there's three of us. Four. There's four of us. Five. Okay. So now. I told Diane my text. She goes, are, are you going to be preaching to a bunch of old men? She asked me, and uh, I said, no, 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 I'm not. But the reason why a 61-year-old can hang with these people and do this six days a week, which is what I do, is because of what I did last year and the year before and the year before and the year before and the year before and the decade before and the decade before. I was little Kenny. My brothers were 9 and 13 years older than me. When we moved from 151st to Falgren Avenue and Hayward, Dead End Street, are you kidding me? Are you here from Florida? Am I seeing something? Yeah. 
Well, hi. Wow. Huh? Yikes. See that? See that? Man, I love you, brother. It was funny. Thank you. First year, my man right there came, had a big old busted up foot. Remember that? We got ready to go out on the streets, and uh, Chris, wasn't it? One of my former students who was at Fuller, I guess, at the time, he said, God wants to do miracles. I said, well, okay, get up and do some. So he had you come up, and he had a little girl come over, lay hands on your foot. It's all busted. It was quite busted, huh? Swollen up, using gobs of pain. And uh, Chris goes, lay your hands on that foot. And she touches him going, does it hurt? She had no faith whatsoever, zero faith. You know, and she's afraid, I'm hurting you, I'm hurting you, all right. I saw the big brace. And uh, Chris said, okay, just pray this prayer. He told her what to pray. Then he goes, how's your foot feel? How'd it feel? Good. God totally healed his foot. First day, you know, and then we went out on the streets. And you guys saw gobs of healings and miracles and, and salvations on the street. It was nuts. God broke it wide open. Okay, so the point is, no, you're not a bunch of old men. I know that. I'm not preaching to a bunch of old men. But someday you're going to get old. And uh, you will, most likely. If Joseph uh, Prince is correct, we're all going to live to be 120. And uh, I sell insurance, and all the different companies that I work for, when you get their illustrators, whether it's PacLife or LSW or whatever, they illustrate to 120 because they have to illustrate an insurance policy through the entire year. And we have 120-year-olds running around on the planet now. And, you know, that was Abraham, the friend of God. He was 120. His, his eye was not dim. His strength was not abated. So I'm, I'm genuinely middle-aged. At, <laughs> at 61, I'm one of the few middle-aged people in the house. All right. So if you're going to be ready for your second half of life, 60 and beyond, yeah. uh, get it right now. Yeah. And this verse will help you get it right now. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in. And this is what stuck out to me. In the Greek, it's set up the faith, the love, the hupomone. It's the faith. It's not, does your translation do that? Does anybody's translation? I didn't find a translation except the young literal translation does that. So I wanted to teach on those three points, the faith, the love, the hupomone. The faith, its essence, its importance, your relationship to faith. Uh, Hebrews 11.1 1 says faith is substance. There's something very real about faith. When you know something's going to happen in advance, it drops it, God drops it in your heart, go with it. That's called faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And uh, Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please God. So its importance can't be overstated. If it's impossible to please God without having faith, then you better get some. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jude 3, Bible says, Contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So the faith has a, a doctrinal content uh, as well. It's not just a functional thing. Um, Hebrews 10.22, it says, Draw near to God in full assurance of faith. So that's, that's your relationship to faith. Faith. So you have doctrinal faith, applied faith. Acts 6, 7, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's really cool in the early church. We know the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. But here, by chapter 6, you know, you had Pentecost, you had the gate beautiful, 5,000 saved that day. But a great many number of the priests were getting saved. 
which is just one, but they were becoming obedient to what? The faith. Uh, Acts 13.8, this is the first missionary journey. The Apostle Paul's out there with Barnabas, uh, son of encouragement, you know. And he was, uh, he was actually a Cyprian, so they went to, he was an islander. He was, a, he was a Pauli, we might say today. But anyway, he went to preach to the islanders. But there was a fellow, it says, Elimus the magician was seeking to turn the proconsul away from what? The faith. So faith applied in Acts 20, 21. It talks about faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Galatians 2, 16. You're justified through faith in Christ Jesus. So true faith has the correct object. Galatians 2, 20. I now live by the faith. Uh, it's actually a genitive in the Greek. Of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't know if anybody translates it that way. Um, does any, any translation say I live by the faith of the Son of God? Isn't it usually in the Son of God or something like that, which would be more, if it was a dative form, it could be instrumental and all that, but it's not. It's a genitive form, faith of. It's not ablative. It's not faith from. It's the faith of. Whose faith is at work in you when your faith is working? It's Christ's faith, right? And, and uh, Galatians 2.20, he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, the Son of God's faith, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, way back uh, when I was that youngster on the screen, I was at Simpson College in San Francisco, and God made me go there. I wanted to hang out with Pentecostals and have no one to argue with. But uh, God made me go to uh, Simpson, and I loved it. Great scholarship, and, and it was near Hunter's Point. That's how I got my introduction into black America and my burden for black America and really became an apostle to black America and that's what God made me uh, he sent me in there uh, when I was 19 years old and uh, I was pretty much a recluse I, I didn't have a lot of friends it wasn't that I was not friendly necessarily I just had such a, a sense of calling on my life that pretty much all I did I, I would preach, I would pray, I would study um, I had one friend named Randy Reynolds, and uh, he snuck up on me at a prayer meeting. This is how he got into my life. You know, if there was a prayer meeting, I'd show up. And then I was in the library, or I was studying, or I was in Hunter's Point preaching, or I was, I was praying fasting. That was it. I would, I would pray, I would fast, I would study, I would preach. I'd preach on the streets, I'd preach in the churches, I'd pray, fast, study, preach. And uh, that was my life. I had a radio show, so I did that every day, five days a week, because I'd graduated broadcasting school and all that stuff and anyway this guy was following me down the hall and and uh i'm walking and he goes no that's right i'm looking at him he goes that's right you're going to be seeing me here every day i'm your shadow i'm gonna find out what makes you tick i, I probably never would have had a friend in college if it wasn't for randy reynolds he followed me back to my room he said no i'm gonna be here i just thought yeah try to keep up with me <laughs> maybe i had an issue or two but uh, thank you. And I was always broke. I was really broke. So one night, uh, a bunch of students wanted, wanted me to go to the movies with them. And I think I saw two movies in the four years I was in college. And uh, this was one of them. It was uh, That's Entertainment. It was a 50-year anniversary MGM or whatever. It wasn't a bad movie. It was, it was pretty entertaining. That's Entertainment. 
Um, we left the movie and we were coming back. I told them, man, I'm broke. I can't go to the movie. No, they want you to go and they're going to pay for you. Okay. So I go and we're in Randy Reynolds' van. It's old VW van, you know, old 1963 VW van, probably around 63. You know, the little porthole in the back window and, and you got bench seat on the side. You got a front seat and a bench seat and then you got... You sit on the engine in the back, you can get a couple guys back there. So we had a couple guys back there. We had Randy and someone else up in front. And then we had uh, a girl on this side of me and another girl on that side of me and me in the middle along the side. And we were on Mission Street in San Francisco. And uh, I felt that we were stopped, getting ready to turn on to Silver Avenue. And I felt the Lord say, Ken, stand up. And I thought that peculiar, you know. And then he said it really firm. Like, I, I'm not telling you the third time. You know, it was one of those kind of, you know, stand up, Ken. So I stood up. Bang! We got rear-ended. And, and I just wrote it out because I was standing up. And uh, we got rear-ended by a drunk, unemployed janitor with his little daughter about the size and age of your daughter. She's screaming and crying, freaking out because her dad, drunk dad, thinking he was on the brake, was on the gas... And here we are stopped. He hit our vehicle so hard that we exploded like coming out of a cannon. And then he hit us a second time before his, his vehicle stalled out. He hit us, and people along the side saw it and said, when he hit you, his rear tires were spinning like this up off the ground. And he was hanging on like this, and when they hit down, he shot out again and hit us a second time. Luckily, his vehicle stalled out. And from a near stop, we were, we were sent more than a football field. And what happened at, at, at that, after the second impact was the side doors popped open. Uh, Dave Swanson, who was from New York City, he, he got blown out from the back all the way up to the front, hit the back of the bench seat that Randy was in. And when we got hit, Randy's head was jerked back and he went to pass out. And he screamed, no, and he stayed awake. Otherwise, we would have gone into oncoming traffic because we were going to turn left. So he pulled it straight. And, and so Dave flies up, hits the back, flies out onto the ground as the side doors pop open. And I get up. I'm already standing up. I just wrote it out. And I get ready to jump out to help Dave. And the two girls scream, Ken, look at John. Look at John. And I look back. And John, I was about 21. He was 19. And we worked out. He was stronger than me. He was, but he was dead. He had taken the same impact that Dave took. And Dave flew all the way up and out. And John was dead. And I, and I looked, and the porthole had been popped out. And I look at this drunk with his head bobbing like a bot, you know, one of those that you get at the baseball games. And I hated him. Everything in me hated him because I knew this kid should not be dead right now. And, and, and I looked at him, and I just hated him. And I could hear his little daughter screaming, and I hated him for being that kind of a dad, and I hated him for killing John. And I said, God, you cannot use me with this hate in my heart. And I look at him and I said, I forgive you. And I felt like forgiveness just went through that little porthole. And I went over and I laid hands on John and I said, Jesus, you have to bring John back. And he, he didn't do it. The Lord didn't do it. I said, Jesus, you have to bring John back. Bring John back. And uh, it's the most beautiful thing. John goes, oh. And then I knew we had a heartbeat because it started... <laughs> like a gusher out of his head. 
and I always, always carry, they're usually clean, I always carry a clean hanky, and I flip it up on his head, and uh, it fills up, man, it just fills up, you know, boom, boom, but, but I know I got a heartbeat, so we're moving in the right direction, but it's filling up, and then Randy, he, he finds a, a rag, and he throws me this rag, and I look at this greasy rag, and I look at him, he goes, no, 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 on top of your handkerchief, on hot, so, oh, okay. So I, I put it on top, and it, it's just filling up with blood, filling up with blood. I said, God, I don't want to bring him back from the dead twice in the same night. It's going to be harder with no blood in the system. Right? And, and Randy yells, push harder. And I thought, I don't want to crush his skull. And John reaches up, grabs my hand. He was strong. And he presses his hand on top of my hand and stops his own bleeding. John lay, uh, Later finished, you know, I got 60 stitches. So did Dave. They both wound up with 60 stitches and, and uh, layers of stitches. And uh, he later became a, a dentist. And people will tell me, hey, this guy named John, uh, he ran. You might know him. He actually, he actually teaches at, at USF up on Parnassus, I guess. And he would run all, you know, people go in there to get their teeth worked on. John was the, the dentist that trained all the kids that were going through and they go we know a dentist that knows you and I was really bad I, I abused it I said tell him he owes me a handkerchief <laughs> and uh, I, after about three handkerchiefs I, I figured Ken that's just wrong man wow. it's just wrong so we live by the faith of the son of God yeah. who loved us Amen. and gave himself for us the faith, be sound in faith. What's interesting, the word for sound in, the faith, in the love, in the hupawone, sound, that word can be translated healthy. You know, we hear a lot about toxic faith, and, and you can really get toxic faith. You don't want that kind. You want healthy faith. The foremost and primary doctrine of the faith is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the K-Rooks' kerygma. It's, you know, I know you all sit under Benjamin. He's talked to you about the kerygma. You ever hear that term, the kerygma? No? Yes? No? Maybe you don't. Okay. He doesn't use the theological the terms of the academy here, so you've learned your lessons well. You're not supposed to do that. And, uh, but he has taught you the kerygma. The kerygma is, is the essential doctrines of the faith that the K-Rooks, which is a Greek word for preacher, proclaims. So it's the preacher's proclamation is the K-Rooks' kerygma. And... Uh, so there you have it. The kerygma, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Point. Our faith, your faith, is based in the person of Jesus Christ, built on the predictive revelation of God's word. That is, you have an historical faith rooted in history and prediction, and it's also about you. Christ died, why? For our sins. I mean, I love the gospel. Psalm 8, beautiful psalm. What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man? That, I mean, you seem to care so much about him. The Bible says the angels long to look into the salvation that's come to you and me. A third of the angels rebelled. God created what for them? God created hell for them. Even when Jesus talks about sending people into hell on the judgment day, he says, go into the, the, the hell prepared for the devil and his angels. God didn't prepare hell for men. Angels fell, rebelled against God. God makes hell for them. That's their destiny. Men 
who are lower than the angels. They rebel, and God loves them so much, he becomes one of them, allows them to abuse him, nail him to a cross, falsely accused, die naked, shamed publicly, and hear from that God, the Son, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The Bible says the angels long to look into it. They don't get it. God, we're greater than... But they're not going to badmouth you and me because they know God loves you and me different than he loves them. Anybody hearing this? And what's really crazy, and I read it in in, uh, what Benjamin has prepared for you in the first things. Who is seated at the right hand of God? We have one meteor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God loved us so much, not only did he take on our humanity, but he took our humanity back into the Godhead. Uh, It's the man Christ Jesus. You know, the kenosis of of Philippians 2, although he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Kenosis, he he emptied himself. He gave away all of his his prerogatives as God. He didn't cease to be God, but he ceased to exercise and function as God, and he gave away a lot of his godness. Jesus was not a little babe in the manger thinking, I guess I better cry now. I mean, (laughs) he wasn't an omniscient baby. He was a baby. He was a helpless baby. Augustine, he he has a great Christmas sermon. If you can ever find it, read Augustine's. He said, you and your great pride brought God the word to this wordless state. You and your great, you know, estate. And he compares how puffed up we are and how amazingly humble God is in Christ. You know, I loved the black church. I pastored the black church through the 70s and started another one, Hunter's Point, in the 90s. But it says, says he's, he's sitting high, but he's looking low. Right? It's about you. The person and the work of Christ, faith. There's a lot of doctrines of the faith, but the two you don't want to mess up are right here. Christological faith, soteriological faith. If you really want to know who Jesus is, uh, these are places to study. Study the Gospels, especially John's Gospel. Study the book of Hebrews. Study Colossians and Philippians. I already talked about the Kenosis passage, Philippians chapter 2. Colossians, read through the first two chapters of Colossians and underline, if you would, if you don't mind underlining in your Bible, every time it says in him, for him, by him, through him, it's talking about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You'll be amazed in him, through him, by him, for him, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Um, Hebrews, it's all about superiority. Um, It says, in in the Greek, it says, "In uh, in various times, in various ways, in time past, God spoke through the fathers, in the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son, who is the exact representation of his nature. And it just talks about the superiority of Christ through the whole book of Hebrews. He's superior to the law. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the tabernacle. He's superior to the animal sacrifices that all they can do is cover you for a year, and then they've got to kill a whole bunch more next year in the Day of Atonement. And superior, superior. To what angel did God ever say, Thou art my son today, right? Superiority of Jesus. Read Hebrews. And John, John is, is the most amazing gospel. John 
tradition says, ended his ministry in Ephesus at the end of his life. But there was a pre-Socratic philosopher named Heraclitus. And the thing about the pre-Socratics, he lived three, four, five hundred years before Christ. But the pre-Socratics were always trying to find what's the essence of life. You know, you had what, Protagoras, whatever. The, it was numbers to him. Pythagorean, Pythagoras, the Pythagorean theme. Numbers. Earth, wind, and fire, you know, they were a great band. But it was a pre-Socratic who said that's the essential elements, earth, wind, and fire. And some said it was water. And everybody had this idea. But there was this fellow that came through Ephesus. His name was Heraclitus. And they called him the philosopher of flux. He said, you cannot step into the same river twice. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. You put your foot in, what happens underneath? Right? And plus the water's moving. Yeah. You can never step into the same river twice. Yeah. You step in, everything's changed. It's not yeah. the same river it was before you stepped in. And yet, at the end of the day, he says, yet the river's still there, and it's, it remains the same. Yeah. How can this be? How can everything be in constant change and still remain the same? He said, behind everything is a logos. Logos, a word, a reason. There's a reason behind everything. And, and, and John, who ended his ministry in Heraclitus' town, said, in the beginning was the logos, the reason. He agreed with Heraclitus. He was an evangelist. He was trying to reach those folks. He said, Heraclitus was right. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the logos was with God, and the logos was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Everything you see that's been made was made through him. Nothing that has been made has been made apart from him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it. And it's, uh, that's kateleben, the Greek word kateleben, could not comprehend it. It, it. It's literally to grasp. The darkness couldn't grasp it. And you know, darkness is a symbol for evil. The darkness couldn't grasp it. And there's two ways to grasp something, like... If you're in MMA, you know, you grab them and yeah, you know, try to, you know, yeah. get them to submit, you know, yeah. get them pass out on your tap out. That's one way to grab. Yeah. And you think about it, uh, the devil can never overcome Jesus. Yeah. He can never yeah. beat yeah. Jesus. He can never out-wrestle him, out-muscle him. It ain't going to happen. Yeah. He, can't, he can't overcome, nor can he grasp intellectually. Yeah. It said, if the devil understood what he was doing the day he crucified Jesus, he would never have done it. Yeah. Because when the devil thought he was winning, that was the devil's last round. Right? You look at Colossians and it said, all those laws that you and I, the law was the mirror to show us what a mess we were. And how impossible it is to get to God from here. You can't start here and get there. The law told us that. And when Jesus showed up, he said, oh, by the way, you said don't, lust af- uh, uh, don't commit adultery with a woman. You look at her with lust in your heart, you already did it. You're guilty. Oh, it says don't murder. If you're mad enough to call your brother a, a fool, a rocka, an empty head, you've already killed him. You're a murderer. Great. All the law can do is condemn you. And Jesus, it said, he nailed to his cross. And took out of the way all those ordinances that were against us. Yeah. So when the devil was, the devil's the what? The accuser. Yeah. The devil was taking away the grounds of accusation as he killed Jesus in your place. So the accuser no longer has any grounds of accusation against you. Yeah. Right. Why? Because he was stupid. <laughs> because he didn't understand. He didn't grasp it, and he never will. Yeah. The darkness can, can't overcome yeah. 
And that's why you look through five, six, seven translations. Some will say, cannot comprehend it, cannot overcome it, cannot comprehend it. Why? I call that purposeful ambiguity. There's a few things in the Bible God threw in there with purposeful ambiguity. Both are true. Yeah. You translate it either way, and it's accurate. Yeah. Oh, it's good preaching. Y'all ought to be shouting a lot louder. That's all. Right. Anyway. If you're going to make a mistake, don't make it on Christ. Christological John, John, John. Seven I am sayings. There's actually many, 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 but there's seven metaphorical I am sayings, and really more than that, but because you got the way, the truth, and the life, that's three in one. I mean, there's more than seven. But we we talk about the seven I am's of Christ, and then just flat out I am's in John's gospel. At one point, they were saying, Jesus was talking about Abraham, said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. And people thought, man, we know you got a demon. You're not even 50 years old, and you've, you've seen Abraham, you know, there's smart mouth in him. And he goes, watch, before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to kill him. He goes, for what good work will you kill me? Oh, no, 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 not a good work. But you, being a man, make yourself out to, to be God. Any religion that says Jesus never claimed to be God needs to read the Bible. (laughs) To say I am, categorically I am, is to say I am God. When Moses, right, he had this encounter with a burning tree, bush. The tree said, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. What happens when you take off your shoes? You're at your real height. You're not so big shot no more. You're at your real height. Yeah. And, and you're being bossed around by a tree. That's on fire. I mean, this is like a lose-lose. And back in that day, they, they, they had an onomasticon. Onomasticon was a book of names. And if you could name a thing, you could control the thing named. So here, the bush not only said, keep your shoes off around me, but I've got a job for you. You're going back to Pharaoh's house. I know you ran away scared 40 years ago. You're going back now, and you're going to tell him, I want all these two, uh, two and it depends who you read, two to three million slaves. I'm taking all your slaves. And, uh, you, Moses, you're going back. Tell him, Pharaoh, you're letting my people go. And he thought, this is out of control. I've got to get back in control. So he goes, uh, okay, um, when I go to Pharaoh, who should I tell him sent me? What's he reaching for? He wants a little control back. Who, uh, who, who, who should I say sent me? You ever tried to trick God? <laughs> I know why you're laughing. Yeah, absolutely. Doesn't work, huh? What did God say? He goes, what's your name? What's your name? Yeah, he said, tell him I am sent you. Because I am who I am. The Hebrew is really interesting. It's, it's tenseless, so it's I am who I was, I was who I will be, I will be who I am. This is a slippery God. You ain't going to get your hands on him. It's, in other words, God's saying, I'm still in control, and I am is sending you. Tell him, I am sent you. James Trumbull used to always say, we all have derived life. We derive our life from God. God is the only being that doesn't derive anything from anyone. He's the only one with real life. So in him was life. Life was the light of man. Light shines in the darkness. So Christology, get your Christ right. And and, uh, the the I am sayings. If you've ever studied the history of of Satan, um, 
Isaiah uh, 14 and Ezekiel uh, 28 is another two passages that are considered sort of the history of Satan. With Satan at the fall, he had these five I wills. You know, I will ascend above the stars. I, I will sit in the side. He had these five I wills. And God said, no, you want them to cash down the pit. But when I teach John, I like to say the five I wills of Satan are answered by the seven I am's of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Amen. 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 So where are we? Am I going right way over this? This is a Hebrew. It goes, it's a Hebrew Bible. So you go left to right, right? Soteriology. Okay, soteriology. Galatians, study Galatians and Romans. Um, note, it was said of Paul as recorded in Galatians, they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Again, it's the faith. Um, salvation is it, 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 it's by faith. It's, it's not of works. And uh, Kerygma applied out, Lord willing, I'll get back to that. Christ died for you. If you hear his voice, you can access his salvation. John 10, 10 through 18, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one has taken it away from me. He's talking about his life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. I love preaching this out on the streets. I preach this on the streets all over the place. Uh, a lot in Oakland, 98th and International, all over the place. And, uh, but I love to preach out loud in a crowd and say, no one killed Jesus because he didn't qualify to die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It says of Jesus, he was tempted in all points, yet without sin. He did not qualify to die. Ezekiel 18 says the soul that sins will die. Jesus never sinned. Jesus did not qualify to die. That's why he says... No man takes my life from me. Talk about authority. There's no authority like Jesus. No man takes my life from me. Why? He didn't qualify to die. You can't kill me if you try. That's what he was saying. You can't kill me if try. No man takes my life from me. I have power, i.e. authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. I received this commandment from my Father. Isn't that... That's the gospel. He who did not qualify to die, died on your behalf. Died in your place. Suffered your judgment. I taught theology at Marin Bible College, and I've got some amazing students around the world that went through that. I had had classes of 50 people. I mean, uh, the Churchills in Africa tearing it up, my uh, Caleb and Rachel, uh, the Houtsmas, a whole bunch of people all over the place. Uh, David's got a church in, in Atlanta and This commandment I received from my Father. John 10, 26, 33. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. I give to them eternal life. They shall never perish. He goes on to say, For no man can pluck them out of my hand. For the Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no man can pluck them out of the Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Let's look at at faith. Faith is in Jesus, not in faith. You know, I hear people all the time say, It's all good. No, it ain't. Um, and I get it. I mean, it's nothing wrong with being positive. It's all good, okay, but it ain't. Faith is in Jesus, not in faith. Degrees of faith. Watch this. The disciples, you go through the gospel. The disciples are the ones with the little faith, almost all the time. Disciples have little faith. This is so sad. People who spend most of their time with Jesus have the little faith. So messed up. And has anything changed? That's what's so messed up. 
centurion, he's not even a Jew. He's not even part of the covenant people. Jesus said, man, this guy's got great faith. Why? Because the centurion said, I know who you are. He said, I too am under authority. He looked at Jesus. He knew Jesus was under authority. And he knew he was under God's authority. And he said, I too am under authority. Therefore, I tell this guy to go here and he goes. I, if you're under authority, you can command. Right? He says, I too am under authority. You don't have to come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. So beautiful about it was his servant. It wasn't his son or daughter. It was his servant. This guy cared. You know how the Bible says faith works through love. This centurion loved his servant. And his servant needed healed. And Jesus looked and said, man, I haven't seen this kind of faith in Israel. Why? Because they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't see him for who he was. This man saw him for who he was. And, you know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and they came to get him, this is a reflection back on, on John's gospel to the end. He goes, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's looking at him. They're there with clubs and, you know, rope. And, you know, and he taught openly. And he said, who do you seek? They said, Jesus. He said, I am. And it said they drew back and fell to the ground. People ask, why do people fall down in church sometimes? It's because they can't stand up. (laughs) You know, they've had an honest enough encounter with Jesus that they can't stand up. And, And so when they said, Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am. It said they staggered back and fell to the ground. And after they got up, it was obvious who was in charge of this encounter. And Jesus said, right? Jesus never, ever ceased to be Lord. Not even at the the arrest, trial, crucifixion. Jesus was in charge of it all. And he said, all right, you came for me, let them go. Who's in charge? Well, they they don't want to go back on the ground. They kind of want to get their job done. They die if he doesn't die. You hear me? You let them go. Why? Well, there's a Bible verse about it. Is it, is that of those you gave me, Jesus said it himself, of those you gave me, I didn't lose one. And old Peter, you know, all off in the flesh thinking he was being godly. Oh, no, I'll die with you, Jesus. I'll go to the mat. Peter, before the cock crows three times, you will have denied me three times. You know, don't put confidence in your flesh. Because yeah. it's only about as good as Peter's. It, doesn't, it won't get it done. Yeah. Faith in Jesus, not in faith. Yeah. The woman's effectual faith, that's a woman that pressed through. If I could just touch the hem. Twelve years ago, I felt power come out of me. You know, you touch Jesus in faith, yeah. you're going to get what you came for. Yeah. And, and you and I are commanded in Hebrews 10.22 that we're to approach the, uh, God with full assurance of faith. Yeah. Just do it. Just believe that he'll be good to you and that he'll he'll meet you. False types of faith, legalism and license. You know, I've worked for people, and it bugs me when when they decide, boy, we have sin in the camp. We have to make a new rule. Let's make a new rule. Can't go to R-rated movies. That's the answer to the sin in the camp. Is that biblically accurate? Is that the answer to sin in the camps? Colossians chapter 2 says that's not the answer. Taste not, touch not, handle not. I'm not recommending go to every movie that ever comes out, but I would always say, God, are there any movies out you want me to see? 
And at one point, I felt like the Lord said, I want you to see uh, the book of Eli. Diane and I went to the book of Eli. Well, it happened to be rated R. It was the most amazing faith journey. And Denzel Washington brings it, you know what I mean? And and you know what? There's a prophecy over Denzel Washington. I think I I heard him share it on TV. When he was a kid in in the neighborhood, he was in the uh, getting his hair cut in a barbershop. And in walked a prophetess. Everybody in town knew she was a prophet and walked up to him and said, Denzel, you will have a platform, a worldwide platform. You will preach the gospel all over the world. And he just, he, she wrote it down, wrote down this prophecy. He keeps it in his wallet. Wow. You know, just pray that whatever adjustments God needs to make or whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you, at the end of that movie, yeah. I mean, I was weeping. Yeah. Diane looked at me and said, everybody at, the area where the person made the new rule, you can't go to R-rated movies, Diane looks at me and says, everyone has to go and see this movie. And I go, they can't. It's rated R. Well, Colossians, the end of the book of Colossians says, (laughs) Colossians chapter 2, so that's legalism. Did we lose it? Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Colossians 2, the end of the chapter. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is it, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which after all refer things destined to perish with the using in accordance to the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Colossians 3, if then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's why you and I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us. So true Christianity is not legalism, nor is it license. You know, and there's some constructs today that are kind of scary. It's almost like... The battle is between sin and grace. Which wins? You know, the amount of sin that I commit and that carries the day or the amount of grace that's extended to me. And that's not the biblical construct. I think I have a, a, a flip on this a little later. But uh, Hebrews ten twenty six and following it, it, 27 says, If we keep on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice for sin. But a fearful looking on the judgment. I heard a preacher that I like. I mean, he... He sees grace all the time. It's Joseph Prince. I watch him a lot. And because he's always looking for grace, he sees it. And sometimes he really nails it. He sees some great stuff. The problem is if you're always looking for grace, you're going to find it everywhere, even if it's not. And uh, the other day I watched him, and he said, what sin can keep you out of heaven? What sin can keep you out of heaven? And some preacher was saying, you know, you can't live a life of sin and go to heaven. And he said the preacher was physically challenged. He meant he was fat. And is gluttony a sin? Well, therefore, he's fat, he's gluttonous, so I guess sin can't keep you out of heaven. And I'm thinking, there's something wrong with this construct. You know, the Bible says, don't be deceived. You know, if you live like that, you're not in. And there's a whole... And at one point, he says, what sin can keep you out? And I thought, I, I think I can find a whole bunch of them in the Bible. You know, it says outside of the book of Revelation, outside are the dogs, the immoral, uh, uh, the murderers, the liars, and those that love lies. And they're outside. And in 1 John, at the end of the book, it, it's, it's so, 
anti-sin, it says, 1 John 5, 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he'll ask God, and for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. I don't know what that sin is referring to, but it's so serious that God says, don't even bother praying about some of these sins. They're so... And I'm, that's freaky. If you're scared, you're okay. You know what I mean? Because you can still confess your sin. It says you're faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You know, if you're hard and callous, you ought to start worrying. Um, look at James. Look at the end of James. And then I've got to flash through this stuff. James. My brethren, the end of the book, James five nineteen twenty. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, if any among you, James said, he's talking to Christian people. If, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I'm not saying that's just to be controversial. I think, I think someone's got to say it. And if I'm wrong, good. Be a Berean. You know, study the Bible. It says the Bereans, they didn't believe everything Paul said. They went back, studied their Bible every day to see if what he was saying was true. I don't have to be right all the time. I'd be glad to be proven wrong. I don't have a problem with it. I just want to be accurate. And I hear guys on the radio, and they've written good books and stuff, you know, like Every Man's Battle, right? And and it's it's so that Christians will quit doing pornography and all that stuff. The problem that I see is they'll have a woman on there, and the woman will say, well, my husband, you know, he's, he's addicted to pornography. Oh, well, then you need, need to give him an ultimatum that you're going to leave him or else, and you need to set a date and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, that's, that's not a biblical way to do it. The Bible says in, in 1 Corinthians 7, it says, husbands, you don't have authority over your body. Your wife does. Wife, you don't have authority over your body. Your husband does. Stop depriving one another. God, God doesn't say, well, give that man an ultimatum. You know, you're going to kick him to the curb or I'm thinking, can't we be biblical? I'm not all that creative. I, I mean, I might have my moments, but I'm not all that creative. You know, people go, wow, that was really an insight. I go, well, I'm just kind of quoting God. <laughs> The Bible says stop depriving one another. It doesn't say give the man an ultimatum. I think sometimes even the church so glib about busting up what God is. What did God say? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. The two shall become one. What God has put together, don't let any man separate. And when Christians are saying, well, just kick the man to the curb. What you ought to be doing is God, if he gets genuinely addicted to this stuff, he's going to hell. Why, does, why isn't the wife told, you better fast and pray and deliver that poor man? You, you need to be more concerned about his eternal destiny than you feel offended because he's looking at, at pictures. You don't care he's on his way to hell? Oh, I don't know. I'm tired of the church being creative. Why doesn't somebody try to be biblical? And that's with finance. I mean... I've survived because I learned to tithe. I, I read about it, Rockefeller. He said, I couldn't have tithed my first million if I hadn't tithed my first buck 50. Wow. And, you know, I'm reading all kinds of books on being rich. 
and rich people. And one of the things rich people do is they give gobs of money, whether they're saved or not. They see it as a financial principle, and, and they don't look at life as, as scarcity. They look at life as abundance. Yeah. They don't see the universe as against them. They see the universe working for them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, I read all this stuff, and I think, God, why are we so messed up as Christians? <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. Yeah. Who was it, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> oh, well. Great salvific passages. Let me just read them. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace, please get this. I'm not saying, you know, you've got to earn your salvation. It's not possible. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. A wicked person cannot be good enough ever to please God, a perfect God. It just won't happen. For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is a gift of God. Even the faith is a gift from heaven. Not as a result of works that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The works don't save you. It says right up in there, right? But you do good works. I've done all kinds of good works. I'm ridiculous. I walk around my town. I drive a Harley. I I like getting around on my Harley. I put almost 60,000 miles on the Harley I own now and uh, crashed it at 250. Yikes. But... uh, it wasn't sounding right. I ignored it. My neighbor said, Ken, your, your motorcycle doesn't sound right. It sounds like a washing machine. I, I mean, that's really embarrassing for a Harley rider. Right? You know what I mean? It, you, you know, I thought, yeah, I know. I just didn't want to admit it. it. It didn't sound right to me. I take it in, and there's something wrong with my cam. So when I, I got new cams, they added the hydraulics. Man, it's really responsive, and it sounds really, really gutsy. So I'm in there, and, and John... He goes, Ken, can you do something for me before you leave? I said, sure. He said, uh, Gary, this is one of his mechanics. He goes, Gary just lost someone real dear to him. He's known him for 40 years. And could you pray for him? Sure. So I pray for Gary, you know. I call out to the God of all comfort. I pray. Gary starts crying. These are Harley mechanics. The owner asked me before you leave, can you pray for my mechanic? You know what I mean? The next day, I'm leaving, and I feel like God says, go back and pray with John. So I go back, I pray with John, I pray for his business, I leave, I get home. I'd left my bike there, fixed the camp stuff, but anyway, he talked to me about a back tire, and I said, yeah, it's failed me once before, I'm going to leave it here. And uh, it dropped some more money, and he's not trying to rip me off, he's just trying to keep me safe. Anyway, he calls me up the next day, he goes, Ken, your bike's ready to pick up. And he goes, uh, I, uh, what was the last thing he said, what was the last thing we did yesterday? I said, well, we prayed together, I prayed for your business. And he goes, yeah, he goes, well, I didn't get too new, uh, uh, clients, but I think I might have saved uh, one of my best customers. You had a nail in that tire. And when I went back in, he showed me, and he had the yellow you know, marker on there, and sure enough, I had a nail on my tire. Had I taken that thing out and waited a day or two to get it, but I felt like I was supposed to leave it. He said, remember what we did? You know, he wanted me to remember. I don't know if John saved, but he wanted me to remember that we prayed and that God showed him, a, a, didn't let me take that bike home. And uh, I, I, over the phone, I said, John, doesn't that show you how much God really loves us? And God really listens to us when we talk to him. I mean, your faith and my faith is so real. Yeah. Everywhere I go, people, I, I buy flowers for Diane all the time. And usually the guy says, you in trouble? <laughs> no, no, I, I just do this for my wife all the time. She's got a hard life. And, uh, and, and then I tell him about it and she does she's she works in a prison san quentin prison five days a week it's tough 
and uh, stressful and dangerous and all that. And uh, then he looks at me, and I've talked to him before. He's a Buddhist guy. He goes, are, are you a priest? <laughs> and I'm thinking, God, I, you know, I'm the pastor in the Harley shop. I'm the priest at Safeway. Hello? <laughs> so are you. So just be that, right? John Wesley said, the world is my parish. So just be that. Titus 3, 4 through 8. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness. Did it disappear again? I'm seeing it. (laughs) Titus 3, 4 through 8. Is it back? There we go. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not Oh! Okay, sorry. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And then he ends this section by, so so speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. God wants you to do good. Your your good doing doesn't save you, so don't get it mixed up. Galatians, the law and the gospel. And uh, I'll just skip over this real fast. But the the importance of the correct gospel is huge in uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, If I or an angel from heaven preached to you a contrary gospel, let him be accursed. He said, If I or an angel of heaven, he said, I'll say it again. I said it. I'll say it again right now, twice in, in two verses. If I or an angel from heaven preached you a gospel different than the one I already brought, let us be accursed. Yeah. So this is, there's only one gospel. And uh, 2 2, Paul is, uh, he submitted his gospel after preaching for 14 years. He went to Jerusalem and submitted it to, to Peter and James and John, those fellows, and said, did I get it wrong? He said, I didn't want to run in vain. So it's important what you believe. Uh, Galatians two sixteen through 21, say by faith or law, it's by faith. And the only way to fall from grace is think you can earn your salvation. That's Galatians 5, 4. Read it. That's the only way you can fall from grace. That phrase, people say, oh, well, he fell from grace. meant he went out and started sinning. No, no, no. To fall from grace is to think you can earn it. He says, you think you can earn it, you've fallen from grace. I, I had a real advantage. I knew I was a horrible sinner when uh, I got saved as a senior in high school. Uh, that's a great advantage to know you're a horrible sinner because you recognize you need a Savior. I feel bad for church folk that think they're really good because they, they got very little chance of getting saved. Remember, the Pharisees, Jesus said, I didn't come for you. They thought they were righteous, didn't need them. They said, well, I didn't come for you then. I came to call sinners to repentance. If you don't think you're one of those, I didn't come for you. That's the scary side. The spirit over the flesh. Anyway, it's all there. Today, the wrong construct. I've mentioned this. Um, sin versus grace. Today as good as some preaching is against condemnation, and we're not to be condemned. Romans 8 and 1 says that. It seems that the construct is grace versus sin. It suggests that the biblical construct is freedom from sin, but freedom over sin by the Spirit. You're to walk in victory over sin. The point should be not, how do I feel better about myself when I'm hopelessly bound to sin? Rather, how can I overcome sin knowing that I am forgiven? So the construct should be the flesh versus the spirit is the correct construct, not sin versus grace. Flesh and the spirit. Uh, Sinless perfection. That ain't it. Here we are. Last slide. Oh, no, it isn't. That's funny. That's just the first point. So I'll, li- I'll leave point two and three for later. Let me back this up. 
Sound and faith. Faith, love, and hupomone. So love and hupomone maybe for another time. But faith, your faith needs to be in Jesus, not in yourself. Don't put your faith in yourself. Don't put your faith in your performance or the whims or doctrines of men. Your faith is not a set of rules and regulations received from your fathers. It is not legalism nor license. Colossians 3.3 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. John 15 and Galatians 5, For you are dead, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore abide in Christ, who is the vine, and you are the branches. Live right by the fruit of the Spirit, not by human effort. Jesus is Lord. Christianity is Christ. Amen. 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 You know, I, I kind of rushed Doc Searle there a little bit at the end, and I, I didn't do that to dishonor him at all. The thing about Dr. Searle is he is a well. Yes. Yes. He is a well of salvation. You know, I, I think whenever I think about Dr. Searle, I remember when I was in Bible college, he used to quote that passage to us, and I fell in love with, with Isaiah chapter 12 because of Dr. Searle. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the well of salvation. And, you know, when I hear Dr. Searle teach, I, I, I just, man, my heart overflows because he's so full. Yeah. I mean, he's just so full. I mean, he's got so much. I mean, I learned so much. I've been learning from this man since 1994, and I learned so much today yeah. just hearing him minister the word. Yeah. And I know that God has so much more for Dr. Searle. And I believe in this next season, God is going to bring a greater release through his life than he has ever seen before. That his latter days are going to be greater than his former. I believe that. I want us to do one thing before we close the service. I want the ushers to come forward. In Galatians chapter 5, I believe verse 6, Paul said that let him who is taught share in all good things with him who teaches. There's something about sowing into the word, sowing into the word. That's our coming into agreement with what God has said and with what God has done. Also, Paul said that the elders are worthy of double honor, especially those whose ministry is teaching and preaching. What Paul is talking about is money. (laughs) Not honor with words but giving an offering, sowing into the ministry of the one who brings the word. The Bible says that we should honor them by sowing a financial gift into their ministry. And so I want us to come into agreement with the word that we've received today. I want us to sow into Dr. Searle's life, and I want us in that way to show honor to the word of the Lord and to the servant of the Lord that brought us this word. And so, Father, today I pray that as we receive this offering on behalf of your servant, that it would be our way of coming into agreement with the word that you've sown into our lives through him today. We do it to bring honor to the word of the Lord and to hold it in high esteem and to bring honor to the servant who speaks it and to hold him in high esteem. Thank you for sending him to us today. God bless this offering. Multiply it on behalf of those who give and on behalf of your servant. And we give you glory for it. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you as you give.